I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. Ooh, but this is awkward. We're going to have to put up a detour in between a few of the dots, and not for long, just about five years. On today's episode, a chunk of Queen Street in the downtown core will be closed to vehicle traffic for a while. Also, what the heck is going on with the Eglinton Crosstown? Metrolinks. Are you okay? Blink twice if you've bitten off more than you can chew and need some help. Plus, who do I think I am? The armchair expert? You'll never guess who I spoke to. This actor who played a very iconic character on a popular sitcom is also a woodworker, a singer-songwriter, an award-winning author, and he was a big part of one of my favorite episodes of television I have seen in a long time. You'll hear us chat about his process, how he feels watching himself on screen. And we also touch on life and nature and canoes and even Gordon Lightfoot, RIP. All of that coming up on Today in T.O. this Buddhist proverb, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional? It might be a bit of a stretch, but I think there are a couple of ways to look at this big Queen Street closure. Here's what you need to know. Queen Street is going to be shut down to vehicles for at least four and a half years. It sounds like a long time, and it is. The closure will take place between Bay and Young and between Young and Victoria, And this is to build a major interchange station as part of the ambitious new Ontario line. The TTC will be diverting to go up and around the construction, but it will still be open to pedestrians. Now, in theory, this new Ontario line will be amazing for the future of the city. It'll be helpful to businesses. It'll give folks better options to get around. And this is all very cup half full because it is Toronto we're talking about. It is Ontario. And it is Metrolinx. And we've been burned before. We're currently being burned. So this closure really impacts not a huge stretch, all things considered, but it can be a very busy part of the downtown core. And of course, there are businesses that'll be greatly impacted by this. And we know how transit infrastructure tends to go in this city. It's long. It's difficult. And when... There are questions, valid questions. The answers we get are clear as mud. That is, if we get any answers at all. Shauna Braille is an economic geographer, an urban planner, and associate professor at the University of Toronto. And she'll help answer why does it have to take so long? It takes so long because it is it is just so complex. And part of the work is that, you know, you're not just building one station, you're you're building a 15.6 kilometer subway with 15 stops across the city. And even if some of that work, a lot of that work is localized to this one area, it simply requires an enormous amount of work. It is a multi-billion dollar mega project for the city. Ultimately, it should leave our city uh, in, in a better condition. But during the time of construction, 
it causes a lot of difficulty and challenge and, in fact, a lot of economic and social disruption as well. Okay, so do you think this project has any hope of being done on time? If past experience is any indicator, the answer is no. You know, one of the reasons for the closure, instead of um, trying to work around the construction and keeping the street open, is this idea that you could save about a year of construction time. This city sometimes makes it very difficult to feel optimistic. And you know, I'm blaming the city. That's misguided. It's actually the province that needs to step in here because it's their deal with Metrolinx and it's their deal with CTS, the Crosslinks Transit Solutions. So here's Mark Winfield, a professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York U on what's going on with the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. We know the cost of the project is up to $13 billion. We're now several years behind schedule. And indeed, Metrolinx is, they've been on the record saying there they don't, there is no credible plan for the completion of the project. That should be the cause for a lot of concern at this stage because it means costs are going to continue to rise. And the project's not operational. That raises concerns about the LRT, the Eglinton LRT, but of course, um, there is now this wider conversation about the Ontario line, uh, which is an even larger and more complicated project. And this can hardly bode well for, for how that's going to go, given uh, that the Eglinton LRT was supposed to have been, a, in some ways, a relatively straightforward project. Yeah, it's hard to get excited about breaking ground on the Ontario line when we have the Eglinton Crosstown LRT debacle. It's still not done. Where is Ontario's Minister of Transportation? Hello? Carolyn Mulrooney, it's time for you to show up and address some concerns, like the fact that there were 260 quality control issues with the Crosstown LRT and still no credible timeline. Whose fault is this? As Minister of Transportation, I am accountable and I am responsible for everything that happens within my ministry, including getting this system opened. I take my responsibility with respect to the transportation network very seriously, making sure that it is safe. That is our number one priority, whether it's a road, bridge, or a subway system, a transit expansion, it needs to be safe for use. We've seen in Ottawa what happens when politicians push subway systems or transit systems to open before they're ready, and we don't want that to happen here. So we are working closely with Metrolinx to get CTS, who's delivering the project for us, to provide a credible schedule so that we can then let the people of Ontario know when we'll be able to open the system. It's been 12 years. I don't want to rush transit either. I think safety is critically important. But shouldn't that always be a part of the plan? This is so shady to me. And it's made worse by the fact that the CEO of Metrolinx, Phil Verster, has enjoyed a very healthy raise every year since he was hired in 2017. These pay bumps would need to be approved by the province. And here's what Minister Mulrooney had to say about that. Mr. Verster was hired by the province back in 2017. When we came to government, we talked about building transit and the Premier unveiled in 2019 the most ambitious transit expansion plan uh, in North America and effectively doubling Mr. Verster's mandate. And that's why we increased his salary when we did. We have a lot of work that we still need to do. Today is an important announcement moving forward with the RFQ on the advanced tunneling for the Young North Subway extension. And so we look forward to continuing to work with Mr. Verster so we can deliver on this important work that we need to deliver on. Imagine if I just left all these podcast episodes unfinished and still got a bump in pay every year like that wouldn't happen. So to bring this all back to Toronto, 
This, of course, has given one mayoral hopeful an idea. Here's Anthony Fury. So we're going to sue them to force action on this file, to light a fire under their rears, because they got to get moving on this. They got to give answers to us and they got to get their act together on this project. And the funds that we receive in part will be redistributed to the businesses along Eglinton and to the BIAs. Hmm. I don't hate it. Now, moving on. Up next, you'll hear my conversation with a huge Hollywood actor. And I think he's been reading my diary because he brought up Donkey Kong, Peterborough, and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Wild. More on that after this. to tell me I would be speaking with Bill from The Last of Us while I was openly weeping during that episode, long, long time, if you know, you know, I probably would have said something like, what do you mean? Of course, Bill in The Last of Us was played by Nick Offerman. In the show, he's a gruff doomsday prepper, and not to sound too dramatic, but I do feel like even if you have no interest in watching the whole season... This tracks as a standalone, and I don't mean to sell it too hard, but it was one of the most heartbreaking and important episodes of television I have seen in a really long time. And get this, I had the honor of chatting with Nick Offerman. He's got a show coming up at Casino Rama. You may know him better as Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, Um, but here we talk about his role in the show, The Last of Us, how he got the time off to do it, and how he feels about watching himself on screen. But first, of course, The Last of Us is based on a video game. And so I asked if Nick Offerman was familiar with the game when he took on the role. He said no, but that's because he was more into these ones. Donkey Kong and Frogger and Galaga and Joust in the arcade that you played with quarters and then I never, I never had a, my own gaming system my whole life, so I never had an in-home gaming system. But uh, I, I, I would dabble with friends, and I played uh, up up until the mid to late '90s. I, I lost a couple weeks of my life. Uh, I was couch couch surfing in Los Angeles, and my friend had um, Banjo Kazooie and Earthworm Jim, which were two games, and and we just literally played them from from morning to night until we beat them and it it was it was the most uh i don't know it was the longest uh most drawn out session of masturbation i ever took part in and it, at the end of it i was i was like oh wow that was really uh a, a thin uh serving of dopamine (laughs) and I'm going to try to avoid that going forward. And so that was the last time I played a video game to this day. I have not seen uh, the last of us, but I'm very grateful that it exists. I don't think I've, I've thought of earthworm Jim in like 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun, but I I just have the wrong kind of personality. I, I, I need to avoid opiates and earthworm Jim. Fair enough. Um, how did you feel when you got 
the the script though for this particular episode because I tell people that even if you're not into The Last of Us as a full thing, a full entire show or a video game, that episode as a standalone, like it it kind of ruined me in a good way. So how did you feel about getting the script? Uh, well, it, I mean, I, I had known Craig Mazin uh, previously, and I was a huge fan of his work, especially Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And so Craig got, got a hold of me and said, basically, I, I'm sending you a script and you have to do it. And I knew it was going to be trouble. Like the the tricky part was they wanted me for about a month in Calgary, and that month was already full uh, on the calendar. And so I read the script and was like, oh, God damn it. I, this is, this uh, is undeniable. And so the solution, uh, thankfully, one of the great things about my marriage is I could say, Megan, we please read this. And she did and said, okay, buddy, you're going to Calgary. And so, you know, then she, because, because uh, she administrated it for me, I could then say to everyone else, well, sorry, I have to. Megan won't let me <laughs> come to your birthday party because <laughs> I have Can't to go mad. shoot this script. Yeah. Um, and so thankfully, uh, it all worked out. I mean, I, but from the get go, everybody involved, all the collaborators on that show, we all knew that we had something special because the writing was so exquisite. And I guess, like, do you, did you watch the episode after? Because I understand, you know, being an actor, you're you're so in it and it might feel some of the magic or some of the, you know, what we see as watchers on the other side. Um, you might not feel the same way, but uh, did you end up watching it kind of top to tail? And how did that make you feel if you did? I, um, it, it is interesting. I, I don't really like to watch myself. Like I, even, um, even, uh, Ron Swanson comes to mind from Parks and Recreation. Even then, when I would get to deliver some joke that some genius had written for me, uh, even then, I don't, I don't ever watch myself and, and feel like it, it's a slam dunk where I'm like, yes, I, I killed that. Um, and I, I think it's just because art is so subjective. And so when I get to see, it's like watching... Uh, tape of my of myself in the batter's box playing baseball to just completely toss a few metaphors uh into the same paragraph but i never i never say aha finally the perfect swing there's always something that can be tweaked and improved and so when i watch something that's dramatic like the last of us i i generally am very uncomfortable and i I, I usually do watch with half a cringe, like, oh man, why are you talking so slow? Why didn't you, why don't you look us in the eye or you just, whatever. I, there's always something I think I can do better. But that said, there's also a sense of like watching to, uh, to see if I screwed it up or not. And watching that show left me with a sense of relief that, that um, I got out of the way enough <laughs> to let the episode succeed uh, despite my involvement. Yeah, I get that for sure. Um, and and I guess that being said, do you prefer, or maybe this isn't even a fair question, but um, you do a lot of comedic roles and you've done a lot of dramatic roles. Do you have a preference there? Not really. I mean, just as as long as it's working, you know, uh, if, if we're, 
if we're making people laugh, uh, if, it, if it's good comedy that uh, has good heart behind it, uh, or from making people cry or, or uh, soil themselves with some sort of catharsis, uh, it, it's all medicinal. And, and so as long as I'm getting to deliver good writing and work with people I like, uh, then, I, then I feel like a lucky kid indeed. Yeah, it really is, I guess, about you know, the process. Are you enjoying the process? And when you're an actor and it's kind of cringy to watch yourself on tape, regardless of how, you know, people respond, um, you know, the process is everything. It's interesting. I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, I would be perfectly happy to never see anything I've done. And that's something that I eventually, at first, being a broke theater actor from Chicago, and then, and then like seeing yourself, uh, when I got to LA, I got to do one line in a Nicolas Cage movie called City of Angels, where I, I said one line to Nicolas Cage. And seeing that, you know, when you, or seeing myself on a live episode of ER, at first, of course, it's, it's like, holy cow, that's me. It's, it's like seeing yourself uh, in a ride at Disneyland where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I got, I got this gig. But that that then wears off, uh, and it's it's not particularly productive to see it. It's you're just marveling at. I can't believe I made it into a movie. Um, but then eventually, I, I I am all about getting to make the thing, and it is so fun. It's so fun to collaborate and and try to tell whatever story we're telling uh, as effectively as possible. And I don't. It, in fact. There's a good portion of stuff I've done that I actually haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, I um, because I mean, there's there's books I want to read, and there's you know there's people I want to talk to, and I'd rather do that than watch episode 117 of uh, something I was in. So something tells me Nick Offerman won't be listening to himself on this podcast, but that's okay. Here we get into his other passion besides acting, and that's being outside in nature. And so I asked him about the last time he felt in awe of something. But it leads to a bigger conversation about terrible infrastructure, safe cycling, a song he wrote in the style of Gordon Lightfoot, and my old stomping grounds in Peterborough. There are a few places around L.A. that I go to get my nature fix, and I recently... Um, I've been a runner for years and my, my knees and my feet have finally convinced me to stop running and to resume uh, bicycling, which is something I've loved to do over the years, uh, which has opened up the Santa Monica mountain preserve uh, in Los Angeles. Um, I've, I've begun mountain biking there. Oh. And that's one of the great the uh, Los Angeles is, is a city uh, built in a place where nobody in their right mind ever should have built uh, an urban center of any. Sport. It's, there's, there's no water. There's a, the San Andreas fault line. There, there's earthquakes. Uh, it's, it's just um, a very illogical, poorly thought out yeah. <laughs> urban sprawl. Um, that said, there are some incredible things about living there and one of them is you can go hiking or cycling in Griffith Park or any of a few uh, neighboring mountain ranges and within five minutes you're saying I can't believe I'm 
I'm five minutes from the grocery store and it seems like I'm in a national park. Um, and so in, in the Santa Monica mountains, which go, go up past like Malibu, uh, there are places where you hilariously can recognize, Oh, this is where they shot the opening to mash. Uh, or like, this is where the Batmobile originally came out of that cave and drove along Mulholland drive. And so you see all these, uh, beautiful nature spots that also are like oh wow this is from an episode of lost in space <laughs> amazing planet of the apes yeah for sure you mentioned griffith park and uh and even cycling my husband does uh he does a lot of bike riding but on the streets and la is for sure not built for that either no it's infuriating i, I lived in uh, new york for a while and that's where i fell in love with cycling and it, yeah. new york is incredible um, the, uh, the, the amount of convenience and, and safe, uh, safe bike lanes that they've instituted. So, I, I mean, I, I controlled that, the five boroughs by bicycle. And then I got back to Los Angeles and was infuriated to discover that this city with much more square footage, uh, is much more anti-bicycle and, and people get really mad if you, if you dare to get out of your car and ride a bike, but yeah, even pedestrian, it's not pedestrian friendly either, which is uh, annoying, especially if you don't have wheels. It is. It's, it's really weird. It's, it's, it's uh, purely American, you know, yeah. to, to make us like to, to violently force us to be uh, conforming consumers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I just want to, you know, speaking of cycling and infrastructure, all these things, I mean, you've, you, uh, you're in the fourth and final season of the Umbrella Academy, which is filmed uh, in Ontario, but also in Toronto right here. And uh, you're doing it with uh, your wife as well, Megan Mullally, which must be really cool. Um, did you get to do or see any fun things when you were in Toronto or is it strictly business? Well, uh, it, thankfully we have, really fun parts, which means it's uh, a pretty grueling schedule. Uh, I've shot a few things here over the years. And uh, I mean, I, I have built a couple uh, wooden canoes and I, I uh, can uh, happily sing the songs of Gordon Lightfoot and Stan Rogers. And so I, I'm an aspiring Canadian in a lot of ways. Yeah. I also pursue good manners and, um, and so I, I, I do love it here. Um, I, I just love to get out and do a little fishing. Um, and w when I have had time, uh, I sneak over to Peterborough yes. to the Canadian Canoe Museum and uh, to go visit my friends, Ted and Joan at Bear Mountain Boats, uh, which is, is an incredible business. That's It's through them and their book, Canoe Craft, that I learned to build canoes. And I ended up making a video for them, which is available at offermanwoodshop.com and some of it is on youtube i think and uh so i mean i i, I love it here but it, it's it reminds me a lot of the parts of illinois i grew up in so that's my favorite thing to do is just i mean just get down to the lake and toronto has the wherewithal to have some beautiful park areas and there's nothing better to do than mess about in a boat yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought up Peterborough. I was uh, actually working at a radio station there. I think when you um, went to the canoe museum and it was such a huge deal. And so I was going to bring that up, but I, but you did. I wrote a song for, I think, I think it was uh, 
an anniversary celebration and I was, I was part of the entertainment and I, I wrote uh, a song about the museum to the tune of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh my gosh, and I'm yes. always sad that, uh, that, uh, that it's such a, such a specialized song that doesn't really play anywhere else <laughs> because uh, especially when I, you know, when I play a show like I'm going to at the Casino Rama, yeah. um, I may, maybe I'll, I'll drag it out. Maybe it's close enough. But it's funny. I find when I want to talk canoes with the citizens of Toronto, they generally are like, please don't forget, we're big city people. We have not built our own canoes. And I say, well, you, you might think about it. That was part of my chat with Nick Offerman, actor, writer, singer, woodworker, and honestly, all around, really nice guy. And I could throw it to producer Glenn Bergonier, who's going to fill you in on the history of Toronto's first subway station back in 1954. But I mean, this works too. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, please give Glenn my very best. If, if I was there in person, I would clap my arms about him and give him a, a bear-like hug, an ursine embrace. Well, personally, I think that's the best way we can ever come into any segment, and I will find a way to make that segue work. So, Ersine hug, Queen Street closed down for the next four years because of subway construction. There we go. There it is. Now, in the city of Toronto, we are pretty tired of subway woes. Whether you're talking about Queen Street closing for another four years or the over 10 years that the Eglinton LRT has been going on, but... I thought it'd be best if we talked about the very first subway line, which was actually built in Toronto back in 1954 and was actually part of the existing line one. And surprise, surprise, it only took six years to construct. So literally about half the time of the Eglinton LRT at this point. But why did the city decide that we needed a subway that would run underneath one of the busiest streets in North America? Well. To put it bluntly, in 1945, the TTC noted that Young Street was far too narrow for the amount of traffic trying to use it daily. Toronto was only continuing to grow, with more and more people using cars, and the city worried that unless something was done immediately, the economy could suffer. So the TTC proposed a 7.4 kilometer subway line that would run between Eglinton Avenue down 12 stations to Union. And it would take about 12 minutes to ride the entire line and cost passengers a fare of only 10 cents. On its first day on March 30th in 1954, the public was invited to ride the subway after 1.30 p.m. and over 200,000 people made that trip on the first day. In total, over 4,200 tons of rail steel, 1.4 million bags of cement, and over 410,000 tons of concrete were used in its construction over 69 years ago. There was also a plan to build a Queen Street subway that would have essentially run between Trinity Bellwoods and Broadview in Riverside, but it was obviously never built. Now, 69 years down the line, Line 1 has 38 stations, runs for about 38.4 kilometers, and can take over 90 minutes to ride from one extreme to another.
Listen, I got a train to catch, but before I go, this podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show, and we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. In the meantime, think about making your own canoe. Bye-bye.